Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome, listeners, to our special nuclear deterrence episode. Alex and I are enjoying Irish whiskey today. It isn't obvious, Alex, but perhaps our listeners will be able to guess why. Please, listeners, tweet us your theories as to why we're drinking Irish whiskey on this nuclear deterrence episode. Apart from the fact that Irish whiskey is very good and underrated. Yes, it's always good. There, there's never a bad time to drink Irish whiskey, but there is a specific reason which I'm hoping our listeners will be able to suss out. So by popular demand, this is our second Ukraine-focused episode. And as you know, listeners, here at Hidden History Happy Hour, we focus generally on entertaining and little-known moments in history and the heroes, villains, and ordinary people who live those moments. And we try to relate them to lessons that our listeners can take into their lives. And of course, we try to have some fun on the way. Today's episode, though, Alex, uh, I think we need to turn that formula a bit on its head, but we think for a very good reason. It turns out that contrary to all of our plans when we decided to launch this podcast, we're actually living through one of those moments in history that for better or worse could prove decisive for the future of our listeners and our children and our grandchildren, at least. That's right, Brian. Right? Today, in the middle of the fog of war in Ukraine, and to be crystal clear, Alex, by war, we mean the entirely unprovoked, illegal assault imposed on the innocent people of Ukraine, not by the Russian people, but by one man, Vladimir Putin. And whilst we always try to give a nuanced view of both histories, heroes and villains, Alex, I don't see any nuance here, do you? I do not. It's very clear and you put it very well. So Vladimir Putin is doing evil, period, full stop. He's already, as we record this, likely committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. And he, Putin, not the Russian people, are the villains. And President Zelensky and the people of the Ukraine, along with all of the courageous nations including ours, who have stepped up to support their efforts, are the heroes. And Alex? Those are the heroes. And uh, in my book, I, uh, I tell two stories about uh, nuclear war, which we're going to tell now. Uh, thank goodness they didn't go further in either case. And I look forward in volume two of Lessons from History in describing the history of the Putin regime rather than the current environment of the Putin regime. Oh, so well said. If they can be on, to paraphrase Khrushchev, the ash heap of history, this will be a major positive moment for humanity. And Alex, I will predict that 100 years from now, and maybe 1,000 years from now, when the hosts of the then current version of Hidden History Happy Hour are commenting on this time in history, they will still be quoting President Zelensky's immortal response to my country, the United States, offering to give him a lifeline out of his country. And now I'm quoting, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. 100%. What a guy. Wouldn't Churchill have been proud of him? He would indeed. And I only need to demur from you, Brian, in saying that in a thousand years' time, 
you and I will still be hosting Hidden History Hour. <laughs> I, science is a miracle. I do not give up on this notion for a moment. We will be hosting it together. Well, Alex, you know, you know that there are very well advanced Chinese people in their 130s who proclaim that a quart of rice wine a day is what did it for them. Well, I don't see any reason to let death overtake any of us now. And if rice wine's what I've got to drink to make it happen, that's what I'll do. Let's tell some stories. At this critical moment, Alex, perhaps in human history, we thought it would be helpful to visit some key moments in the Western history with the Soviet Union. And for those of you who don't know what the Soviet Union is, this was back in the Cold War, Russia and all of its uh, slave states. When we learned, or we should have learned, the existential threat of nuclear forces on hair trigger alert mm -hmm. during a global East-West conflict. And Alex, as you know, the specific event that triggered, no pun intended, our podcast today was Vladimir Putin's announcement early on in his invasion of Ukraine that, and now I'm quoting, because of alleged aggressive statements by NATO, he was putting Russian, quote, deterrent forces, close quote, including nuclear forces on high alert. And then he added chillingly that, quote, the consequences of any attempt to strike back following our country's invasion of Ukraine would provoke a response never seen in history. And Alex, I'm sure we share our pride and admiration for both of our countries stepping up and not being intimidated by such threats. And surprisingly, the near universal support for Ukraine, including with lethal assistance of most of Europe and indeed Finally. much of the rest of the world, right? That's correct. We, we, we have our differences between the two of us and you have your differences with the European Union, but everyone stepped up. Am I right? Well, yes, finally. I mean, I, for months, Britain was flying aid uh, and material to Ukraine around German airspace so as to uh, either not have to ask them because they were going to say no or after they said no. Uh, but yes, the, uh, there is a, a vault fast, uh, yeah, wrong language, but there's a vault fast uh, being performed now, a transformative time in German politics where the Germans are now committing to uh, 2% of, of their spending uh, towards uh, the NATO minimum and uh, to assist Ukraine vibrantly. I think this is tremendous. I agree. I mean, if someone had said any time in, in the last 70 years that suddenly the whole of the Western world was going to unite to urge the Germans to form an enormous army <laughs> and march through Poland right. and take on a land war. Be a little bit of pause. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they they might have been saying um, just just want to make sure you you, you know what you're saying, <laughs> but but we really do want the Germans to step up. And I agree, I agree. And it's not just Europe; it's Japan, it's Australia, it's I don't not right. New Zealand, but you know most everyone else. Yeah, that that's true. But um, given that it's the Germans who've been peculiarly yes. um, dependent on on Russian energy, and the point, by the way, for any listeners about Nord Stream Two, is that there's a Nord Stream One that sits behind it that still continues to fuel the German uh, economy, and which is why the Germans should, and I think will, uh, revisit their nuclear power um, provisions that they gave up on after yes. Fukushima. Because obviously after Fukushima, the Germans realized they get a whole load of tsunami in continental Germany. 
Uh, no, they don't. Uh, it was an absurd thing to have done to given up on nuclear power. So we we want the Germans to, uh, re, as the most important economy in Europe, uh, to revisit their their position on these things. And yes, we want them to to rearm, and yes, we want them to go past Poland and fight the Russians if necessary. And these are uh, things that uh, hitherto people have been rather hesitant about asking Germans on the European continent to do. Uh, but now we now we do. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that in, in both of our countries, the UK and the United States, we have a vocal uh, protected by our various constitutions. You know, some people put it in writing, some people, it's just an understanding, but in our constitutions that the right to protest, the right to speak out, the right to criticize your government is absolutely sacred. The only thing I would say about that, Alex Dean, is I wish the anti-war movement in the United States and the UK and on the continent would be as vocal about what Russia is doing right now as they have been about the infinitely less aggressive, less international war crimes activities of our governments over the last 20 years. Yes, and you have a constitutionally protected right to be stupid. Um, <laughs> and you have a constitutionally protected right to say that you know, NATO caused this, even though Vladimir Putin uh, triggered an invasion. Uh, even if one were to concede that uh, the expansion of NATO, a defensive alliance uh, yes. constructed in order to protect its members, many of them in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, as they sometimes call it, um, many of them weak countries, vassal states as they were, to protect them from aggressors. Uh, even if you regard the expansion of that alliance as something hostile, in the end, it was an active decision yeah. by Vladimir Putin to invade a country. Not you know, either, He either had to decide to invade or not, and yeah. he decided to invade. Uh, and I, the, the, the next decision we have after that, Brian, is what do we do? I was debating this with a particularly pseudo-clever and flaccid professor of international <laughs> relations uh, in British media recently, who maintained that the only outcome that was uh, going to happen was a negotiated peace. And we shouldn't be getting involved and we shouldn't be helping people. The only outcome was a negotiated settlement, to which I pointed out that, well, unless we help the Ukrainians, as we should, then it's not the case that the only outcome might be a negotiated settlement. If we don't help the Ukrainians, another outcome might be that they're defeated uh, yeah. by the Russians. And that is an appalling outcome to have come about. And you should be honest about your uh, convictions if what you think is, as, as he did, uh, that they should hurry up and lose. Yeah. Uh, they should get on with it. And the best thing for the peace of nations is for the Russians to be able to roll over the Ukrainians rather than inconveniently being propped up uh, by Western powers. So I hope very much yeah. that we do the right thing by our Ukrainian friends. We support them as much as we can. And my goodness, at the time of this recording, the Ukrainians are sticking it to the Russians and long may it continue. Yeah. And we've, you know, this is a, it's an interesting thing, right? So we started this podcast a couple months ago and we hoped that we could not only entertain people and introduce people maybe since to some new drinks that they hadn't had before, but also, you know, help people learn from the lessons of history. I, I, in my wildest dreams, Alex, never would have imagined that we would have been sitting literally at this hinge of history. So at this critical moment, I think we, we, we feel like it'll be helpful for our listeners to revisit some key moments 
in the West, and by that I mean the UK, the United States, the Western Europeans, the maybe even uh, former Soviet bloc countries that have joined us, mm. our history with the Soviet Union, and, and now Russia, to think about what we've learned or we should have learned about the danger of the existential threat of nuclear forces on hair trigger alert during a global east-west conflict. And, and honestly, that's where I think we are. That's right. So, Alex Dean, I have to ask you, based on your book, Lessons from History, how did being on such an alert work out for one lieutenant colonel? Thank you, Brian. This is the tale of Stanislav Petrov, who saved the world. By the 1980s, um, the Soviet Union had built and then launched a uh, net of early warning satellites, which were designed to give Moscow the slightly advanced knowledge that a nuclear attack was underway and to therefore allow a little time to react to it. There was a bunker uh, that was that satellite network's control center. Petrov was a Russian lieutenant colonel who was on duty in that bunker on the 26th of September 1983. And a little after midnight, his center's computer reported that an intercontinental ballistic missile had been fired by the USA at the USSR. Everything conventionally known about the doctrine of mutually assured destruction suggested to him and suggested to anyone instructing him that a first strike nuclear attack by either side would mean the sudden launch of not one, but hundreds of missiles simultaneously. And Alex, both both in the Soviet military and your military and our military, a lieutenant colonel, a lieutenant colonel, is not normally granted a lot of discretion, right? This is a junior officer, uh, but he yeah he knew the theory of mutually assured destruction. If you're going to press the button, hundreds of missiles are coming my way, not one. Mm -hmm. So he simply didn't believe the system. He thought the man thought the machine had malfunctioned. The man didn't believe the machine, but of course point is it wasn't his call to make mm -hmm. his supposed duty was clear sound the alarm comrade petrov you are the spear point of our counterattack. you warn we launch that's how it's supposed to work we're attacked we fire our nuclear missiles at the americans and because time is of the essence correct but petrov ignored it just flat out ignored it worse his whiz-bang satellite system then reported Four more missiles heading towards the USSR. I mean, now you've really got to doubt yourself, right? Petrov wrote this off as an error again. And in his defense, ground radar showed that no inbound missiles, neither one nor five, were actually coming towards the USA, which confirmed his view. But the very point was that early warning systems were designed to give the Soviets a heads up before that ground radar confirmation was possible so it wasn't it wasn't just a clever name then early warning no well indeed that heads up was not meant to be stymied by the contrary views of an officer is my is my point and brian it seems that the false alarms that he's received were caused by an unusual alignment of sunlight bouncing off of the top of clouds oh which very rarely happens, right? Well, that would seem a pretty stupid reason <laughs> yeah. to wipe out humanity, wouldn't it? Uh, nevertheless, the point is Petrov didn't believe the system until those the recognition came through. If he had not ignored what the system had said, I'd, not only would we, we would not be recording this podcast today, 
people would not be using the internet today. Humanity would have been set back 99th percentiles of the advancement of civilization. We would have been back to the Stone Age. Both sides would have fired their nuclear weapons at the height of the Cold War. Now, are we grateful to Petrov, who saved the world? What happened to him? First off, no medal, that's for sure. Which, you know, they could have gone down that path. They could have adopted and burnished his wisdom for PR reasons. Or on the other hand, they tried to hush it up for national security reasons. But mm. too many people knew about the episode by the time that these things were considered. And it was thought highly embarrassing for the USSR that the new satellite system had been second-guessed by this right. lowly officer. And even worse, second-guessed correctly, even if that guessing prevented nuclear war. So what happened to Petrov was a shuffle sideways, a demotion, a nervous breakdown, early retirement. Mm. And such is the fate, I think, for those who embarrass the institutions they serve by being right. Yeah. There are not many rewards in life for being right when the majority are wrong. It's just the case that normally the fate of humanity doesn't, doesn't depend on you sticking to your guns. So I suppose today's lesson from history is that sometimes you are definitely going to be punished for doing what you know to be the right thing, and you should still do it. Yeah. Does history record the end of his life, the end of his military service, anything? Finished in sad obscurity, but uh, and as I say, post-mental breakdown, so yeah. not a happy end to a life. But I suppose, Brian, the question is, the tricky part is, what if he'd been wrong? Yeah. What if he'd been wrong about second-guessing the system? Yeah, this is this takes us back to Fort Stevenson and many of our other conversations. There is a very fine line between when you disobey the chain of command and when you don't. And as you rightly said in one of our earlier episodes, history doesn't really record the people that got it wrong. Tend not to remember the losers. It only records the people that got it right. But also, I think, you know, especially recording this in March of 2022, we want people to take away is you have judgment and you have agency and whatever position you're in, whether it's in the government, in an IT shop, in the private sector, you got to make your own call and yeah. don't defer to people that claim they know better because a lot of times they don't. Well, there's a matching story that goes with mine. Yes. So uh, why don't you tell that one? Well, so lest we leave our listeners with the misconception that this kind of situation only happens on the Soviet side. And again, for our younger listeners, the Soviet Union was for uh, 70 years, the bloc that opposed the West, the UK, the United States and Europe uh, on the Russian side. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who served under Kennedy and most of the Johnson administration, said, quote, in my seven years as Secretary of Defense, we came within a hair's breadth. I don't know if you can actually measure that, but it seems close of war with the Soviet Union on three different occasions. And I got to believe that's the minimum, right? So we'll get back to Secretary McNamara and the Cuban Missile Crisis momentarily. But first, though, from Alex's lessons from history, uh, and I don't think we know whether this is one of the three incidents Secretary McNamara was alluding to, but 
I believe it is not. I believe it's a fourth. Yeah. So, so the three that we don't know, which we might cover in a future episode, don't even include this one. But Alex, what do you? What is your story of Yogi and the Bomb? Because this is not a Soviet story; it's an American story. Right. So back to 1962. Cuban Missile Crisis, tensions riding high around the world, especially amongst uh, those tasked with defending the United States. The authorities in the United States uh, believed uh, that not only that the USSR was willing to strike first, but also based on their intelligence and their projection of enemy activities, that sleeper agents uh, in the United States would likely be activated prior to any attack in order to sabotage America's nuclear capabilities. And I think this has been depicted on several popular TV uh, shows in your country, Brian. Yeah, and, and, and they were, it wasn't wrong. They were here. With that in mind, if you imagine that you were a, uh, with no um, uh, condescension intended towards the person concerned, whether he be a, an enlisted man or a conscript, uh, a lowly first-class private, in the small hours of the morning of the 25th of October, 1962, the security facilities in Duluth at the Direction Center in Minnesota on high alert let me just yeah. interrupt you. For most of our North American listeners, you'll know that as Duluth. Well, you you say potato. <laughs> I've only ever read the damn word, so would you do what you would want it. After all, this center provides command and control over aircraft squadrons and radar facilities in the region of Minnesota, or as Brian would say it, Minnesota. Um, <laughs> so we can imagine how the guard that we were describing um, drawing his paycheck, just a usual working man, how a guard on duty there um, might feel in these circumstances and the heightened tensions. But just to make sure we don't trivialize it, Alex, the, the northern states in, in the United States, Minnesota and North Dakota, were viewed uh, in the Cold War as the early warning centers for when Russian nuclear missiles would hit us. We had That's some stations correct. in Alaska. We cooperated with our Canadian allies, but this was ground zero. And so when you're talking about Minnesota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, you're talking about what we thought was the most early warning we would get of a Soviet missile attack. That's correct. And I had built a certain amount of atmosphere into telling the story, which you punctured, but I'm just going to ignore that. Um, so the guard that uh, I was describing and I was seeking to invite our listeners to understand before Brian's interruption, uh, how that person would feel um, as he surveys the security fence, perhaps not the, you know, a college graduate, perhaps not a, a uh, it's, it's just someone who's been told to take up a rifle and defend his country against these reds who might be coming and he sees in the far off security fence he sees a shadowy figure climbing in the darkness over the fence and um, he was defending his base he was defending his country he was defending western civilization at a very critical time indeed and so here comes an intruder like into my story so uh that guard shot at the figure in the darkness and he sounded the base's alarm that alarm was meant to warn of attempted forcible entry. And in turn, that set off alarms and a relay at other relevant nuclear-related bases in the region that, Brian, you were describing. In Wisconsin, not close to Duluth, uh, another state 300 miles, well, miles away, 
thank you. There's a there's a base called Volk Field, and Volk Field was linked in the alarm system, and uh, Volk Field didn't have a control tower. So nuclear armed F-106A jets, those jets were launched on orders from how are we saying this Duluth. Duluth. All right, they were launched on orders from Duluth. Now, unfortunately. The alarm system at Volk Field was not working that night. So Duluth's alert, rather than warning them of potential on-site sabotage, sounded the base's klaxon instead, which ordered nuclear-armed interceptor jets to take off. So this was implying to our pilots that the United States was in an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union. America's defenses were already at DEFCON 3. No drills, no drills. Pilots and ground crews, if you get the alert, that's it. Nuclear war. So they took to the runway. However, this is the thing about the human factor, which I like Mm -hmm. about this story. Sometimes, no matter how finely tuned a system is, no matter how many times you've rehearsed it, it doesn't hurt to check. (laughs) So Volk Field Commander telephones his counterpart at Duluth. Not only... Uh, was it supposed to be the sabotage alarm and not the take off and kill everything in, in humanity alarm? Right. But by the way, the intruder was in fact a bear. <laughs> now, Alex, I got to stop you. Not a metaphorical Russian bear. An not actual... a Russian bear. It was an actual bear out of the woods. A bear that had climbed. <laughs> and this would be a stupid reason to wipe out humanity, wouldn't it? It seems so. They yeah. said, Right, so the the guy at Volkfield ring, rings up the guy at Duluth, and he says, "Hey, panic over! It's uh, it wasn't a real attack on us, and it's not a real warning to take off and launch missiles. It's uh, it was just a bear." That's all well and good, but the planes were already on the runway. Yes, sir. And they were, had orders to go, and in a demonstration of the rule, no matter how many systems you've got, in the end, sometimes you've got to do something yourself. Base command at Volkfield emptied out of officers who got into their own cars, their own station wagons, their own saloon cars, and drove onto the runway. Love it. To flash their lights and honk their horns. Now, admittedly, these F-106As were interceptors with their nuclear... But they still had nuclear weapons. Correct, but they were they were bombers, but they were they were interceptors. But their launch would have been interpreted by the USSR with the heightened tensions of this day. Who knows where it would have gone? But we know that those officers driving onto the field in their station wagons and flagging down the jets with their arms sticking out the windows ensured that a bear didn't start a nuclear war. And I think that's a good story. Uh, it's a great story, and you tell it well, and I'm not even going to make the obvious comment about the bear being the symbol of Russia and the Soviet Union. But hey, you want to you go one more? If all they'd heard was, it's a bear... Right. The telephone. Yeah. That would not have that would not have been reassuring. No, it might have been it might have been interpreted as code for Russia. And moreover, the Tupolev uh, 95, which was a Soviet bomber, was called the bear. Yes, that was the NATO code name. And, and that's still the Tupolev 95 is still in service to this day. For all I know, there is one circling over Ukraine now. Uh, the Tupolev yeah. 95, the bear would if someone said it, it's a bear. That's not a reassuring sound either. Right. And for all of our listeners who, because of youth or forgetfulness, need a reminder, at this point in our story, 
um, most historians would agree that this period that Alex just talked about where the Yogi situation happened, the Cuban Missile Crisis, also known as 13 Days, was, as of today, the most dangerous period of the Cold War. That is the ideological and, in some cases, military struggle as of today, between the Soviet Union. Long may it remain so. Yeah, so this was in the shit, as we would say. Yeah, and let, let us hope that that's the worst it gets. Well, you anticipated my next comment. I would bet that future historians might consider the period we are in right now as we speak as at least as dangerous as the crisis in 1962. So I think it's, I think it's helpful to recap what was happening during the Yogi episode, which you tell so well. Here's the bare bone facts. United States intelligence learned in late 1962 that the Soviet Union was attempting to install functional medium-range nuclear-tipped missiles, by the way, of the same type that are probably on alert now in Western Russia, into Cuba, a mere 90 miles from Florida and minutes of flying time from the U.S. capital and the East Coast of the United States. History largely records the young new president, John F. Kennedy, and his senior leadership team with preventing a nuclear war by refusing recommendations from senior military leaders to conduct massive airstrikes on Cuba, which might well have led to World War III. But, and here's the key but, Kennedy's decision to pursue the diplomatic route backed up by some audacious games of chicken at sea with Russian warships was based on intelligence assessments that there were no nuclear warheads in Cuba at the time that could be married to missiles and used against the United States. Now, let me read a quote about this time period from then U.S. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara who reportedly had urged caution over the advice of most of his generals trying to convince Kennedy to launch a massive preemptive strike on Cuba, which might have led to World War III. McNamara says, quote, it wasn't until January 1992, so now 29 years later, in a meeting chaired by Castro in Havana that I learned 162 nuclear warheads, including 90 tactical warheads, were already on the island at the time of this critical moment of the crisis. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, and Castro got very angry with me because I said, Mr. President, let's stop this meeting. This is totally new information to me, and I'm not sure I got the translation right now. Alex, this could have been Castro propaganda, but if that's true, and there's always the possibility that Castro 30 years later was lying, it was actually the American president's belief in bad intelligence that prevented a catastrophic nuclear war. Yeah, I think I've read that story in The Fog of War. Yeah, that's the documentary where he tells it, yeah. Uh, sometimes wrong intelligence can be absolutely determinative in yeah. the decisions that mankind takes. And I offer 
one example repeated twice. The Germans believed that the Americans would not enter the First World War, and they therefore calculated uh, and made their decisions accordingly, wrongly, mm-hmm. uh, and catastrophically for the German nation. They then believed that the Americans wouldn't enter the Second World War, and they entered their decisions wrongly and catastrophically for the German nation. The point being that we would still, even though they were wrong, we would still rather they hadn't behaved the way they had, yeah. leading to the immense destruction and, uh, and uh, devastation for humanity that it had done. And sometimes understanding your opponent's wrong decisions is as important, or sometimes more important, because it's irrational and therefore harder to guess than understanding your opponent's right decisions. Yes, and Alex, I mean, you're far more the politician than I am, but how do we, how do we improve messaging between potentially catastrophically adversarial nations so that both sides understand the nuance and the uncertainty of it? How do we communicate that? It's a very hard question. Indeed, it's very hard, especially when Putin has been explicit and overt about his concerns about um, the demise of the USSR, the greatest tragedy of the 20th right. century in his view, and, and his desires to rebuild the Soviet empire in different terms, but that's basically what he's been saying to us for 25 years. So listening to your opponents is the, listening to your potential opponents is the, the, the single best thing you can do. But I suppose the second one is not entering into international agreements that you don't mean. After all, the United Nations has a human rights council, and uh, some of the members that have sat on that body in recent years uh, are, are an insult not just to human rights or a council, but an insult to would be an insult to you know a school body committed right. to democracy when it's governed by the bullies who like to give you a swirly in the toilet. That sort of that sort of thing. So um, long way around of saying. We could get better at uh, communicating with one another by dint of um, educational programs, exchanging students to go to one another's universities and learn one another's languages and so forth. In the end, there's something to be said for a strong leader. And I can't help but notice that in recent times, Ukraine has been invaded twice. Uh, Once under the Democrats, then not under President Trump, and then once under the Democrats again. You can make of that what you will, but I'll draw my own conclusions. And what do you what do you feel about the British engagement with Ukraine in that same time period? Oh, I think that we have acquitted ourselves. Um, I, look, my government gets lots wrong. I'm not a pom pom carrying cheerleader for everything um, from Westminster, but my government in that time frame has acquitted itself, I think, very well. Uh, not least in the arms and material that we have been volubly supplying mm-hmm. to. Uh, Ukraine, uh, not just in in recent weeks, but in recent months. And there was a time when the United States and the UK and and to to their credit, Visegrad countries and the Eastern Europeans were uh, seeking to supply Ukraine when much of Western Europe was ignoring their plight and not seeking to um, support them. But I mean, your president said from a podium that a minor incursion might be acceptable, or words to that effect. And that was catastrophic uh, for the people of Ukraine. If you think think about a single sentence that has undermined a nation state, it's very hard to, get to find a worse one than that. No, it was terrible. I think that um, I think the UK can hold itself, hold its head high in this regard. I'm sure my country gets lots wrong, but on this, I think we've done very well. Yeah, that was. Um... 
it was terrible. Like there's no other way to frame it. I will say though, that in the long arc of freedom, we haven't done so bad over here on our side. I hope though, that our leaders on both sides, and I'm not optimistic about this because we're so divided now, but I hope that our leaders on both sides will recognize that there's no option. We have to stand with Zelensky and Ukraine. And if that results in risking a nuclear confrontation, I think we have to do it because I think if we don't, the 21st century is going to look much darker and much worse than any of us anticipate. And so if, you know, Poland is threatened, uh, if the Baltic states are threatened, if Hungary is threatened, I think we have to draw the line there. What do you think? Oh, I agree. Look, there are some 19th century type balance of power, uh, realpolitik uh, figures who, uh, Westphalian uh, type thinkers who say, well, what business is of it of ours? If yeah, Russia invades Ukraine, there's just yeah, a little bit of difficulty. Yeah, exactly. But, but that's not my view at all. Absent their position, I think most people are on different shades of the spectrum of, of your position and mine, apart from a strange new tendency on the fringe of politics, which is getting a lot of airtime at the moment, which is it's all to do with the expansion of NATO. <laughs> like, you know, you came into school with a different haircut today. That's why the bully punched you. <laughs> right. Completely awful. Uh, it's just crazy. Uh, so absent that, I, I completely agree with your premise. And I, my closing thoughts are with the people of Ukraine. And um, God for you know, I can't imagine any, anyone in Ukraine that's listening to this podcast. They've got other things to do. But were they to do so, um, they're in our thoughts. I'm too old to pick up a rifle. <laughs> they wouldn't even accept me into Ukraine if I went there and I have two daughters. But if we don't rise to this moment, I don't know what the 70 years of NATO did. Because this is every bit as provocative and contrary to international law as everything that Hitler did, at least until he invaded Poland, maybe even after that. So I hope that we, and by we, I mean President Biden, Prime Minister Johnson, and all the leadership of Western Europe and the rest of the world rise to the occasion because this is existential. We're going to determine in the next two months what the rest of the 21st century looks like, don't you think? I do. I do. This is one of those hinge moments in history. Decades can go by that almost don't matter, and then weeks happen that are decades, and uh, we're, we're in the latter. And you know, Alex, we're friends We've bantered back and forth about many things over the last 20 years. I don't think either one of us intended to launch a international relations podcast, but this is where we are. Yeah. And if we don't rise to the occasion, we're fucked. I hear you, brother. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. 
We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers.